One of my lockdown projects was to read my way through the entire set of Bernard Cornwell's Sharp novels, all 23 of them. Uh, I now know more about uh, the Napoleonic Wars than I ever thought I would, but my big problem came when I got to the end of book 23, because I always find the ending of a book, or, or a book series in this case, to be something of a bereavement. You see, when I'm reading, I enter into the story. The characters become real to me, and losing them at the end of the last page can feel like a bereavement, a real loss. I don't want to let them go. I want to hang on to them, to cling to them, to find out what they will say and do next. It can be very hard to let go of the friends that I make in stories that I read. And I know I'm not alone in this, because the whole industry of fan fiction is designed to cater for those who want to know more about the characters that they have come to love. Sometimes, as with Sharp, if the book I'm reading is part of a series, I just need to plough straight on into the next one, not losing the characters I've come to know so well, wanting to see what happens next. But sometimes, what I really want to do is to go back to the beginning and start reading it again. Now that I know how it ends, it reads differently the second time. And here's my question for us as we come to our Bible reading this morning. In what way does knowing the end of the story affect the way we engage with the story? Now, of course, there is one golden rule with novels uh, that I try desperately hard not to break, and that is the rule that one should never, ever turn to the end and read the last page. To do that is to break covenant with the author. It has something of the air of cheating about it. But of course, once the ending is properly known, because you've got there in the right way, any future rereading of the story has to take place in the light of what is already known about the outcome of the story. And this is exactly what we've got going on in our reading today from near the end of John's Gospel. It's not quite the last page. Uh, there is a little bit after it, which we'll come to next week, but it's certainly part of the concluding narrative of this story, the way that John's Gospel tells it. And the thing about John's Gospel, as with all the other Gospels, is that they are written for people who already know the ending. Not a single person sitting there in, I don't know, the early 90s of the first century, not a single person hearing John's gospel read to them for the first time, not one of them would have been wondering at the crucifixion scene whether this was the end for Jesus. This whole gospel that we've been reading through since the start of the year is a story that is written for those who are already part of the next installment. We have a technical phrase for it. It's called dramatic irony. It's where the readers know more than the characters in the story appear to know. And so we need to hear the account of Jesus' appearance to Mary from the perspective of those who already know the end of the story. 
You know, they're having their conversation in the garden, aren't they? Mary, Master, Mary, we're going, oh, come on, we know. Can't you see it, Mary? The significance of this narrative isn't that Jesus is in some way still very much alive and with his disciples. Rather, it is that the encounter with the risen Christ then needs to go somewhere. It's a story about the significance of the events rather than the events themselves. And so we come to the characters in the story. Now, don't hear me wrong here. I'm not suggesting that there is no such historical person as Mary Magdalene or Simon Peter or the otherwise anonymous disciple whom Jesus loves or even Jesus of Nazareth himself. I'm not suggesting they didn't exist historically. But what is certainly true for us is that we don't directly encounter the historical figures that lie behind the gospel stories. We meet them instead through the words of the Gospels. So here in John's Gospel, we meet John's Mary. We meet John's Simon Peter. We meet John's beloved disciple. And yes, we meet John's Jesus. They become real to us as we read them into being in our minds. And people long dead come back to life in our lives as their stories take breath and are breathed into being once again. And so it is that Mary Magdalene reaches out to try and cling to the man she encounters in the garden outside the empty tomb. The usual translation of this verse doesn't really do justice to the force of what John is trying to put across here. Uh, Jesus' response to Mary is often translated as, um, don't touch me, which can seem very odd, given that only a few verses later, Jesus is happily inviting Thomas to not only touch him, but to put his fingers into the wounds of the crucifixion. More on that next week. And there's been much, in, and in my view, uh, unnecessary metaphysical speculation about the nature of Jesus' resurrected body and why Mary isn't allowed to touch it at this point. And I do rather think this misses the point. We're not talking here about Jesus' physical, historical, resurrected body. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus as it is encountered within the narrative of the Gospel of John. And so we need to meet the story on its own terms and to hear it as readers who have already encountered the resurrected Christ in our lives, present with us by ongoing encounter with the Spirit of Christ. So the simple translation, don't touch me, is inadequate. And we need to delve a little deeper to discover more accurate renderings, such as, don't cling to me, or don't try to keep me, or don't try to possess me. Those capture much better the Greek of what John is trying to say here. This isn't about whether Mary can touch Jesus. This isn't about the nature of Jesus' resurrected body. Rather, it is about the fact that Mary has to let Jesus go. She cannot keep him. She cannot possess him. She cannot cling on to him. 
We know Mary Magdalene from earlier in John's Gospel when she was standing near the cross with the other women watching Jesus die. And the other Gospels similarly have her playing her part in both the crucifixion and resurrection stories. Luke's Gospel actually gives us a bit more information, telling us that she had received healing from Jesus for the seven evil spirits that had possessed her. And this is clearly a woman whose name is known throughout the early Christian communities as a person who was close to Jesus during his life. And here in John's Gospel, we are shown her moment of crisis in this garden as she meets the resurrected Christ for the first time. And what is immediately clear is that for her, things are very different now. But also, that she still wants them to be the same as they always were. She wants to cling on to the Jesus she has known. She wants to hold fast to the Jesus of history. And she has to be told that this isn't the way it's going to be from this time on. Her encounter with Jesus has to move from the physical to the spiritual. She has to learn to let go of the earthly Jesus and to embrace the new experience of the resurrected Christ that will be found through lived encounter with the Spirit of Christ. For Mary, there's no going back to before the cross. The resurrection doesn't negate or undo the decisive moment of the crucifixion. The physical body of Jesus dies on the cross and the resurrection does not render that moment void. Rather, those who with Mary encounter the resurrected Christ do so from the perspective of those who already know the ending. So at the time of John's Gospel, written some 60 years or so after the crucifixion, the disciples of Jesus in the late first century knew that they didn't encounter Jesus walking and talking with them, eating with them and touching them. They knew that they didn't meet Jesus in their lives in the same way that the disciples in the gospel stories had met Jesus in their lives prior to the crucifixion. Rather, they encountered Jesus speaking to them through the words of the stories about him. They met him by his spirit present with them when they gathered together in his name. They met him as they broke bread and shared wine in memory of his death on the cross. They felt him touch them in the waters of baptism, and their lives were transformed by divine encounter as their sins were forgiven. And this is the journey that Mary must now make in these closing pages of John's Gospel. She becomes the archetypical disciple making the journey we all must make in our encounter and ongoing relationship with the resurrected Christ. Because this is where the Jesus of history becomes the Christ of faith. This is where crucifixion gives way to resurrection. This is where death gives way to life and despair is transformed into joy.
This is the new world from beyond, breaking in upon Mary, as it breaks in upon all those who encounter the resurrected Christ. This is the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. I often think that contemporary evangelical Christianity has something of a problem with the resurrection. Most Christians seem quite happy with the cross of Jesus. We have our finely drawn arguments about the nature of the atonement, but we don't seem to know quite where the resurrection fits into things. And my concern is that the resurrection gets relegated to being some kind of, I don't know, cosmic publicity stunt. The sole purpose of which is to kind of prove that Jesus is the son of God and to allow us to know about what really happened at the cross. Mary's encounter with Jesus in the garden takes us beyond such problems and points us to a more profound way of engaging with the resurrected Jesus. The resurrection needs to be more than a cosmic publicity stunt which validates the cross. It needs to become instead an invitation into a new way of living, a gateway to a new way of being. And a key to this is found in the way Mary relates to Jesus. Did you notice what Mary called Jesus as she tried to cling on to him? She called him Rabunai, which John tells us is Hebrew for teacher. Mary is still stuck at this point in the role of student to Jesus's role of teacher. She was disciple. He was master. And Jesus counters this by rewriting the script by changing the language. In the post-resurrection encounter with Christ that those who would be his disciples reach out to and encounter, they find that he is no longer their master, but instead Jesus becomes their brother. Jesus is not our master, Jesus is our brother. There are 120 instances in John's Gospel where God is identified as Father. And yet this verse here, right at the end, is the first time in this Gospel that God is mentioned as being the Father of anyone other than Jesus. Let's hear it again. Chapter 20, verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me. Do not cling to me because I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. In the new world that comes into being at the resurrection, God moves from distant other to present father, from elemental force to parental love from wrathful dictator to enfolding grace. And Jesus moves from master to brother, from Lord to friend. The new Moses becomes the new Adam as humanity is reborn in the resurrection of Christ.
God comes near and greets us as lost children welcomed home. And Christ is no longer merely an intermediary between us and the divine, dispensing words of judgment and guidance. Rather, Jesus is most fully God with us. Present with us by his spirit in each moment of each day. And yet it seems to me that so many of us, so much of the time, keep trying to cling on to the Jesus of history. We want the master who will teach us and tell us what to do. We want the Lord who will sit in judgment on our enemies and uphold our righteousness before the unfaithful. We treat the stories about Jesus as if they were synonymous with the historical Jesus himself rather than what they truly are, which is invitations to encounter the resurrected Christ in our lives by his spirit. We cling on to our preferred version of Jesus and persuade one another that he is ours to keep and control. And if this is us, then we need to learn the lesson of Mary Magdalene in order to have Christ with us, we first need to let go of him. If you look at Mary's journey through our passage this morning, we see her making three distinct moves. She begins the chapter in the darkness of unfaith, in despair at the cross, in confusion at the empty tomb. Then she recognizes Jesus in the garden and moves to a conditional faith. She can see him, but she can still only see him as rabbi, as teacher, as master, as Lord, and she wants to cling to that. And so she tries to cling to him, to keep him familiar and close. But the third stage of her journey of faith is to move to becoming someone who has truly encountered the risen Lord, who has been able to bear witness to the truth of the new world, that has come into being in her life by the power of the resurrection. And John's gospel encourages all of its readers to undertake this journey of Mary, a journey from the darkness of unfaith to the confused joy of partial faith to the gracious outpouring of resurrection faith. And we must take care not to get stuck at partial faith where Jesus is Lord and Master, but not yet brother and friend, because that way lies legalism and graceless religion. We need to discover God as our loving parent, drawing us close in love and embracing us as long-lost children. Because if God remains distant and other, then our faith remains theoretical and abstract. And to ground this in the reality of 2022 Baptist life, the arguments that are taking place in person and online at the moment about whether it is okay for people in same-sex marriages to be ordained as Baptist ministers are to me a perfect example of people who have not yet moved away from arguments about legalistic religion, people who have not moved away 
from clinging to the historical words of Jesus. And dare I say that there needs to be a move from there into what it means to embrace the God and Christ of resurrection, where the arguments are no longer about who said what to whom, but are about how God loves all. But we know this, don't we? To end where we began, we are those who know the ending. We are already living the end in the present. And we read into being the stories of our own lives in the light of the presence of the resurrected Christ in our midst. And a church like Bloomsbury, with all of our emphasis on social justice and our seeking to participate in the transformation of the world, can find it very easy to relate to Jesus as our inspirational teacher and to God as our guiding principle. But I wonder if sometimes, are we so good at following Jesus that we miss the fact that he is our friend and our brother? I wonder if sometimes we're so good at worshipping God that we miss the loving embrace of a parent who longs to hold us close and to speak words of deep comfort into our troubled, struggling souls. And I wonder what it means for us to let go of our well-loved and dearly loved Jesus of history in order to encounter the mystery of the resurrected Christ in our midst in new and transformatory ways. What might it mean for us to discover through mystical experience the presence of Christ in our community? What would it mean for us to meet the spirit of Christ in ways yet to be made known? as our lives find their fulfillment and peaceful resolution in the love that draws all things to their perfected conclusion. We already know the ending. So let's live today in the light of it and see what a difference that makes to the story that we live by and the stories that we live in. In our prayers today, there will be a, a short response. When I say, Christ is risen, please join with me in saying, he is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Lord God, we bow our heads and hearts before you now. Our great God, our wonderful creator, our majestic king, the source of all that is good, the bestower of love and kindness. We have journeyed to the cross together over these weeks, seeing the depth of your love for us in the suffering and abasement of our Saviour Jesus Christ. We have stood aghast at the foot of the cross as the giver of life perished, fastened onto the cross not by nails but by love. And now with wonder, with joy and with the sure and certain hope that death is conquered, we stand and gaze at the empty tomb. Jesus is alive today. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. 
All around the world on this day, Christians gather and celebrate the risen Christ. They proclaim his death, his resurrection, and his return. Yet for many, the joy of these truths is tempered with sorrow and with fear. Many meet together today privately and secretly. Not for them large buildings with crosses. Not for them Easter processions or parades or passion plays. Forgive us our complacency as we take these privileges for granted, failing to recognise them and complaining at what we don't have. We pray for your persecuted church that even today it will take comforting a message of Christ risen from the dead, conquering even death and sin. Risen Christ, stand by your persecuted people and give them strength. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. We preach the power of Christ over death, and yet death is all around us. War, famine and epidemic are throughout the world. We pray for peace. Peace in Ukraine. Peace in Yemen. In Tigray in Afghanistan, in Israel and Palestine. We pray that you would confound the plans of those who seek to bring death and destruction, who seek to take what is not theirs, who seek to dominate the lives of their fellow humans. Grant, we pray, wisdom to those in government, desire for peace, a concern for justice, and an open hand to help those who flee conflict. We pray for those who seek to bring healing and medicine to the world, that you would prosper their work, that the wealthy nations would ensure that all people have access to vaccines, medicines and clinical care. We pray that we, in our rich and greedy country, might share what we have taken from the world, that we might make the rules fairer, that children wouldn't starve while we waste so much food here. Risen Christ, stand by this troubled world and show us your example. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. We ourselves meet today and sing these songs of joy, and yet for some there is grief and sorrow. It is hard for mere words to dispel mourning, anxiety, uncertainty, remorse, shame, fear, loneliness or doubt. It can be easier to be the bewildered disciple of Holy Saturday rather than a rejoicing believer of Easter Sunday. Comfort us with your ever-present spirit. Help us to see in the resurrection your love, the consummation of that love that brought you to this world as a helpless baby and took you from it tortured on a cross. Help each one of us to meet with Jesus Christ, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Help each one of us to meet with Jesus Christ crucified for us. Help each one of us to meet with Jesus Christ 
risen again, greeter of Mary at that first Easter. Help each one of us to meet with Jesus Christ, King of glory, the worthy Lamb, the royal shepherd of our souls. Risen Christ, stand by us and give us hope. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Almighty God, who through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, overcame death and opened the gate of everlasting life, grant that we who celebrate with joy the day of the Lord's resurrection may be raised from death of sin by your life-giving Spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, our parent, our brother, and our enabler. Amen. Amen.